namo bhagavate vasudevaya Om namo bhagavate vasudevaya Om namo bhagavate vasudevaya Om ajnana temeradasya jana jana shalakaya Takshurun militam jena tasmai shri guru namaha I was born in the darkest ignorance and my spiritual master opened my eyes with the torch of knowledge I offer my respectful obeisances unto him Shri Chaitanya Manovistam Stapitam Jena Bhutale Swayam Rupa Kadamayam Tadatitswa Padantikam. When will Srila Rupa Goswami Prabhupada, who was established within this material world, the mission to fulfill the desire of Lord Chaitanya, give me shelter under his lotus feet? Vancha Kalpa Turubyascha Kripa Sindubeavisha Patitanam Pavanebio Vaishnavebio Namonamaha. I offer my respectful obeisances unto the Vaishnav devotees of the Lord. They are just like desire trees and can fulfill the desires of everyone. And they are full of compassion for the fallen conditioned souls. Jai Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda Shri Advaita Gadadhar Shri Vasadi Gaurabhaktavrinda I offer my respectful obeisances unto Shri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Lord Nityananda, Shri Advaita Gadadhar Pandit, Srivast Thakur and all the devotees of Lord Chaitanya. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. So I pray that Krishna, Srila Prabhupada, Srila Gurudev use me as an instrument so that their message can flow through me to give me the words to serve all of the Vaishnavas here and listening online. Today we are reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 1, Creation, Chapter 8, Prayers by Queen Kunti and Parikshit, Saved, Text 11. Today is Tuesday, June 22nd, 2021. Sutta Uvacha Upadharya Vachastasya Bhagavan Bhakta Vatsala Apandavam idam kartum Draunar astraram abhutyata Sutta uvacha Upadharya vachastasya Bhagavan bhakta vatsala Apandavam idam kartum Drauner Astram Abhutyata Sutta Uvacha Upadharya Vachastasya Bhaktavan Bhaktava Salahe Apandavam Idam Kartum Drone Rastram Abhutyate Sutta Uvacha Upadharya Vachastasya Bhagavan Bhakta Vatsala 
Apandavam idam kartum. Droner asrama butyata. Suta uvacha. Upadarya vachastasha. Bhagavan Bhaktavatsala. Pandavan Matantakatu. Rone Rashrama Bhutyata. Sutta Uvacha. Sutta Goswami said, Upadharya, by hearing her patiently. Vacha, words. Dasya, her. Bhagavan, the personality of Godhead. Bhaktavatsala, he who is very much affectionate towards his devotees. Apandavam, without the existence of the Pandavas' descendants. Idam, this, Kartum, to do it, Draunel, the son of Dronacharya. Ashram, weapon, abhutyata, understood. Translation and purport by His Divine Grace A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Srila Prabhupada. Sutta Goswami said, having patiently heard her words, Lord Sri Krishna, who was always very affectionate to his devotees, could at once understand that Ashvatama, the son of Dronacharya, had thrown the Brahmastra to finish the last life in the Pandava line family. Purport. The Lord is impartial in every respect, but still he is inclined towards his devotees because there is a great necessity of this for everyone's well-being. The Pandava family was a family of devotees, and therefore the Lord wanted them to rule the world. That was the reason he vanquished the rule of the company of Duryodhan and established the rule of Maharaj Yudhisthira. Therefore, he also wanted to protect Maharaj Parikshit, who was lying in embryo. He did not like the idea that the world should be without the Pandavas, the ideal family of devotees. So today we'll look at Krishna's affection towards his devotees. And how we can feel that affection, to feel protected by him. So we have a very um, good example here of how Krishna protects his devotees. He's, we know what's happened up until this point. So the, the battle, the great battle of Kurukshetra was fought, and the Pandavas came out victorious. And as a last-ditch effort, Ashvatama, the son of Dronacharya, he was thinking that, let me take some sort of revenge and kill all of the sons of Draupadi. And so he killed all of the sons by beheading them while they were sleeping. So Arjuna went to go find him, and out of fear, he released the Brahmastra. Very powerful weapon. It can cause mass destruction of multiple planets. So Krishna advised Arjuna to also release the Brahmastra to counteract it. 
and then he withdrew both of them. But because Ashwatthama was unable to withdraw his um, Brahmastra completely, there was still some residual fallout here. And, you know, the Brahmastra is such a powerful weapon that it can be used as a nuclear weapon, but it's also targeted, right? So he, when he shot the Brahmastra, he was thinking that he wanted to end the line of all the Pandavas, the descendants. And therefore, it directly um, affected Maharaj Parikshit in the womb, even though it didn't affect his mother. So that's how powerful the weapon was. It was very targeted, and and it could also be huge and nuclear. So as Krishna is leaving, um, Uttara, queen, I guess, she's the mother of Maharaj Parikshit. She knew something was wrong. She felt it. So she comes running to Krishna to help to help save her, right? And that's basically what we want to do in times of trouble. We want to run towards Krishna to have him help, help save us. But so often we forget to do this. Or we do it in a way that is demanding. Right? So when she comes, she doesn't just say, Krishna, save me. She just she first glorifies him. And then it's like, if you want this, you know, if this is your will, if this is your mercy, if this is your will, please help me. So often when we pray, it's like, Krishna, please do this for me. And if you do this for me, we start bargaining, right? We're like, we're like okay, um, so if you do this for me, then I'll do this. But if you don't, then I'll also do this. Because we have this idea of love is very transactional, right? We want to bargain for it. Like, I'm going to give you this, and we're going to trade this, and we make it a very business arrangement. But love is not like that, especially our love with Krishna. Krishna is very um, affectionate towards us, and he's just waiting for us to give him just a little morsel of attention and affection. Krishna says over and over again that he is very partial to his devotees. He says, in Bhagavad Gita 9.29, I envy no one, nor am I partial to anyone. I am equal to all. But whoever renders service unto me in devotion is a friend, and I am also a friend to them. So he's saying that he's, he's equal to everyone, but if someone starts to offer him some service, he becomes especially favorable towards them. So it's more that... He has that love to give to everyone. And he's not it's not gonna be like, you know, George is standing here in front of the deities and I'm standing here in front of the deities and he's Krishna's gonna be like, Well, we're just gonna ignore George, right? He's he's got the equal amount of love to give. And he's got it for everyone, but everyone just has to come and seek it. And one of the reasons that we don't is out of fear. Or in some ways, it's out of lack of faith. We have this fear that we are not going to have enough. We have this fear that we need to work really hard, that we have to provide for ourselves, that we can't trust anyone or anything. And so we tend to use that same kind of behavior towards Krishna. We don't trust him. Even though if we look at our lives time and time again, he's shown us that he can trust. we can trust him. In this moment, 
um, Lady Uthra has lost her baby in some ways. I mean, she's had, um, she could feel that Maharaj Pariksit in her womb has been killed. And yet she doesn't turn away. She doesn't think, well, my God, you know, I, my life is over. What's hap-? She comes running to Krishna, please help. What can we do about this? Can anything be done? So she seeks his guidance. Whereas a lot of times when we're in our, when, when you know, when we lose our job or we have some sort of difficulty, we may even, you know, curse Krishna. Like, how dare this happen to me? How, why are you doing this to me? We take it very, like, personal. And in this case, Krishna does it so that we can turn towards him, that we can depend on him more, but also that we don't get so attached to the material world. And also, these challenges teach us, right? And we have karma, and we have lessons and conditioning that we need to learn these lessons. So in some ways, we've structured these lessons for ourselves. We've designed our own lesson plan based on our behaviors and thoughts and desires. So really, we can't really blame Krishna for the challenges that we have. What we can take responsibility for the challenges that we have, and we can take that those challenges and turn them over to Krishna in full faith and full trust that he's going to take care of it, even if we can't see it right away. I heard this story. I thought it was very interesting. So there's a story about, I mean, I don't know if it's true, if it's just somebody made it up, but it's a really sweet story. So somebody was noticing this family in a store, let's say, like the dollar store. And, you know, the kids were kind of, there was, it was a mom and two kids, and one kid's a little bit older, and, the, and there's a young one that's still in, like, a toddler's age, and he's being pushed in the cart. And they're just being rambunctious, so the mom says, okay, you can pick one item that, you know, that I'm not, that's not on my list, one item that you can play with. And so the older brother, you know, maybe about five years old, he picks out those glow sticks, and as soon as he picks out the glow sticks, what happens with the younger brother? I don't know if any of you guys have an older brother or sister, but I have an older sister, and whatever my sister did, I wanted to do. Whatever she had, I had to have. And so this is a common dynamic between siblings, right? So at the moment the younger brother saw his older brother with the glow sticks, he was like crying, t- throwing a little tantrum, I want that. So the mother opens up the pack of glow stick and gives him one. Because she knows she's going to pay for it anyway, right? So the little toddler is playing with this glow stick. He's happy, as happy can be. He just thinks he has, like, this wand, and he's just waving it around and, you know, playing with it. He's just thrilled. And so while they're waiting in line, the older brother notices he's got the glow stick in his hand, and he takes it from him. And the moment he takes it from him, the little boy starts crying and throwing a tantrum, of course, you're thinking, why did the boy take it from him, you know? But what he did is, after he took it from him, he cracked it open. If you guys ever played with the glow stick, you know if you crack it open, it lights up. He cracked it open, and it lit up, and he gave it back to his, ta- his brother. And his brother was, like, thrilled beyond belief. Like, whoa. You know, he was happy enough with just the plain glow stick without it shining and light, you know, with all the light. But when his his brother had to take it away from him in order to light it up, right? 
And when he got it back, he got something even better than what he originally thought he had. And that's how a lot of times challenges are in our lives. So, you know, it may on the outset look like this challenge is taking something away from us and it, we're, we were comfortable and why did this happen? But if we just have a little bit of patience and a lot of faith, we can see that what comes is ten times better than what we had before. We didn't even know the possibilities of what could happen. And that's how I found a lot of times in my life things are. Right? I don't know if I shared this before, but when I was younger, I really wanted to go to college in Boston. I don't know why. I just thought it was the place to go. I wanted to go to Boston University. It's like the most expensive college in all of the U.S. Of course, I live in Texas, so I'd also, on top of it being the most expensive, have to pay out-of-state fees. And I didn't get that many scholarships to go there. I did get scholarships to go to University of Texas in Austin. And, you know, in-state fees, close to home. So I very begrudgingly went to Austin because financially that's where I ended up. But I look back and I think, my God, that was like the most wonderful time. Because one, it was Austin. And if you've been to visit Austin, Texas, you know how wonderful that city is. Um, The campus is beautiful. The weather overall is, you know, it's Texas, so it's fairly nice, whereas Boston gets freezing cold, and I don't know why I thought I could ever survive in a place like Boston, because I probably wouldn't. I probably would have gotten there the first winter and been like, okay, I'm done, I'm coming home. Um, But on top of that, you know, that was when I was making this decision of whether or not to be Krishna conscious, right? Because I was raised in Krishna consciousness, and came to the temple my whole life until I came to college. And when I was in Austin, that my like first year, I guess, I didn't really, there wasn't really a temple there. There were a few devotees. They were way far away. I didn't have a car. I had to take a bus everywhere. So I never really went until um, one of my close friends or good friends that I knew growing up Janava and her husband Mahatma moved to Austin to start up a center there. And some of my fondest memories in college is spending time, week, my weekends at their house. And it was through them that I met my spiritual master, Kamal Krishna Goswami. And I know that Krishna would have arranged whatever he would have arranged if I'd gone to Boston, but I feel like he set it up that I would go to Austin so that I would always be surrounded by devotees. But just enough for me, and just far enough away for me to appreciate being in either Houston or Dallas. Because after I got done with college, I realized that I did not want to live in a city that did not have a big temple. So I did my residency in Houston, and then I decided to move back to Dallas. Um, And then the other part of it is, to always be around God brothers and God sisters, which is going to be either here or in Houston. So, you know, it's like these chain of events. Uh, as Steve Jobs has said, you can never know what, how life is going to be until you look back and connect the dots. You can't connect the dots going forward. You can only connect them going back. And that's basically what I see. Every point in my life, 
I wanted something. I really wanted something. And Krishna's like, yeah, I don't think that's a good enough plan. I've got a much better plan for you. Just be patient. And that's basically what happens here. Because he did have a much better plan. He protected Maharaj Parikshit. He um, gave him his life back. And Maharaj Parikshit, even as a baby, understood the, the seriousness of what had just happened. And so when we come to the point of the Srimad Bhagavatam, when he gets this curse, he's like, I've already had more than my share of um, mercy, right? With, Mar- with Krishna pr- um, protecting me in the womb, I don't need to ask for protection again. And he willingly takes the curse and lives out his seven days listening to the Bhagavatam. So you can see, like, he was able to have this devotional attitude his whole life because of the events at, at his birth. And we can see that many times in our lives as well, that because of certain things that happen, our attitudes are formed. So we really want to harness this idea of fearlessness. You know, Krishna says that's one of the nature's uh, qualities that are transcendental in 16.1, Bhagavad Gita 16.1-3, where he's describing all the qualities. He says, fearlessness, self-control, tranquility, to name some of the few, belong to godly persons endowed with divine nature. So these are some of the qualities that we want to adopt, that we want to embody. Fearlessness, self-control, and tranquility. And they only come when we have this level of faith and trust that Krishna is always going to protect us. In the purport of Bhagavad Gita 5.12, Prabhupada says, this is the secret of Krishna consciousness, realization that there is no existence besides Krishna is the platform of peace and fearlessness. So we have to understand that there's nothing outside of Krishna. We may have all these material things, but they're all to be used in conjunction with Krishna. And we can look at how we can use them in conjunction with Krishna. Prabhupada goes on to say in the purport, in Krishna consciousness, there is no duality. All that exists is a product of Krishna's energy. Krishna is all good. Therefore, activities in Krishna consciousness are on the absolute plane. They are transcendental and have no material effect. One is therefore filled with peace in Krishna consciousness. But one who was entangled in profit calculation for sense gratification cannot have that peace. So what it comes down to is, what is the mindset? What is our desires and intentions behind each and every one of our actions? Um, so one of my, I guess, desires or luxury items are, like, I love having the latest tech, right? Like, the latest iPhone, the latest Apple Watch, the latest whatever it is. And... You know, I've really learned to look at, do I really need to upgrade every year? You know, how often do I need to upgrade? But at the same time, I know that um, I use my phone more than just a phone, right? I use it for email, text messaging, taking pictures. If anyone's followed me on um, Facebook or Instagram, you'll notice that I take pictures every time I dress the deities, and I put them on I post them online. 
And I feel like that's one of my services. But I've also noticed that as I've upgraded the phone, the quality of the pictures also upgrades. So, you know, there is that, I look at it as a side effect because I don't know if that would be like the reason why I want to upgrade so I can have really nice pictures of Krishna, but it is a bonus. But at the same time, it's like looking at all of those things in our lives and, and figuring out exactly why we want it in our lives, why we need it in our lives. And in some levels, sometimes we have to admit to ourselves that we need to have our luxury items because we have attachments and conditioning. And if we don't, then sometimes our mind keeps thinking about it and racing about it. So we just have to be honest about our intentions and be honest about our goals and progress. You know, I can, one of, I've said this many times, if you've been to any of my classes, you know I always talk about my TV addiction. And I recognize I have an addiction. I also recognize that every time I try to stop watching TV, it's not that easy. There's a lot of stuff that goes on internally. So I always look at, like, how am I decreasing my TV watching? And I've often said that if I get to the point where I'm watching no TV and not hankering after watching TV, I know that I'm, like, pure love, pure bhakti, because that really is my, like, final vice, right? So I'm honest about that, but I'm also honest about how much am I trying to progress? Am I just giving it lip service? Am I, um, is it one of these things, well, that's just who I am and I'm not going to improve? Because that's not the attitude we want to have. We want to know that these are the things that I'm working on and these are the things that I know I need to work on, but they're going to be later on because you can't do everything at once. In Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, I think it's 6.25, he says, um, step by step, gradually, with faith and determination. He doesn't say all at once, right? So there's a couple of thoughts about when you do things gradually. There's the, the line of thinking that you do the hardest thing first, then you get the, the confidence and boldness to do the easier things. Then there's also the thing that you build up to the hardest thing where you do the easier things first and then you're like, oh, this was easy enough and this was easy enough and you build your confidence up to do the hardest thing. I'm kind of on the second um, platform. Like I like to start with the easiest things and work my way up. Um, but I know people that do it the other way and it's what works for you that's the best, right? So... We want to have this attitude of knowing exactly what our mindset intentions are so that we can honestly come to Krishna and ask him to help us with our progress and be honest about not asking him for something we're not ready for because if you ask him, he's going to give it to you. So if you ask him, you have to be ready for it. In the purport of 16.1.3, Prabhupada says, the first qualification, fearlessness, has to be alone without any support or guarantee of support. Simply depend on the mercy of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. If one thinks, after I leave my connections, desires, who will protect me? One must be fully convinced that Krishna, or the Supreme Personality of Godhead, in his localized aspect as Paramatma, is always within that he is seeing everything. 
and he knows what one intends to do. One must thus have firm conviction that Krishna as Paramatma will take care of his soul surrendered to him. I shall never be alone, one should think. Even if I live in the darkest regions of a forest, I shall be accompanied by Krishna, and he will give me all protection. That conviction is called fearlessness. This state of mind is necessary for a devotee. So we want to come to that level of, I know that I'm not alone. I know that I can count on Krishna, that Krishna always has my back, that he's always going to take care of all of my needs. And like I said, it's not easy to do. But it goes hand in hand with understanding that Krishna is always very affectionate to his devotees. That he's always caring for us. That he always loves us. And he says over and over again, he gives us in the Bhagavad Gita, he tells us over and over again all the things that make us dear to him. In chapter 7, text 17 and 18, Krishna says, The one who is in full knowledge and who is always engaged in pure devotional service is the best. For I am very dear to them, and they are very dear to me. In 18, he says, All these devotees are undoubtedly magnanimous souls, but one who is situated in knowledge of me I consider to be just like my own self. Being engaged in transcendental service, one is sure to attain me the highest and most perfect goal. So Krishna is saying here that all we have to do is render pure devotional service to him in full knowledge of him, and we can become perfect like he is. Right? And we can, um, he, we can become very dear to him, and he becomes very dear to us. And this is the goal of life. This is our highest and most um, perfect goal. In 9.18, Krishna says, I am the goal, the sustainer, the master, the witness, the abode, the refuge, the most dear friend. So he's saying that he is our most dear friend. He's everything for us. He's the goal, the master, the sustainer. He's going to do everything for us. He's reassuring us of this. And then in 1868 and 69, he says, For one who explains this supreme secret to devotees, pro-devotional service is guaranteed. And at the end, they will come back to me. There is no servant in this world more dear to me than they, nor will there be ever be one more dear. So he's showing all the different ways that devotional service endears him, endears us to him. And he's saying that topmost of that devotional service is spreading his glory, spreading his message, um, teaching other people about being Krishna conscious, about who Krishna is. And as devotees, we want to cultivate these qualities um, that make us dear to Krishna and Krishna dear to him, dear to us. And in Bhagavad Gita 12, chapter 12, um, starting from text 13, Krishna really tells us, like line by line, who is very dear to him. So the qualities are one who is not envious, who is a kind friend to all living entities, who does not think themselves a proprietor, and is free from false ego, equal in both happiness and distress, tolerant, 
always satisfied, self-controlled, engaged in devotional service with determination, mind and, and intelligence fixed on Krishna. One by whom no one is put into difficulty, who is not disturbed by anyone, who is equiposed in happiness and distress, fear and anxiety is very dear to him. One who is not dependent on the ordinary course of activities, is pure, is expert, is without cares, free from all pains, not striving for some result, is very dear to Krishna. One who neither rejoices nor grieves, neither laments nor desires, renounces both auspicious and inauspicious things, is very dear to him. One who is equal to friends and enemies, equiposed in honor and dishonor, heat and cold, happiness and distress, fame and infamy, always free from contaminating association, always silent and satisfied with anything, doesn't care for any residence, fixed in knowledge, engaged in devotional service, is very dear to him. And finally, he concludes, those who follow this imperishable path of devotional service completely engage themselves with faith, make me the supreme God, is very, very dear to him. So these are the qualities that we want to meditate on and try to achieve as devotees of Krishna. So how do we do that? We can set an intention of attaining these qualities. You know, one of the things that we can do is as we go along our service, go along our day, we can set our intention of, let's say, being non-envious, which is a big intention, right? Because envy is basically the root of the reasons why we're here. And it, it can be found in the root of all other qualities that we have. Lust, anger, greed. It's all rooted in envy. We want what Krishna has. We want control. You know, it's this desire for everything. And if someone else has it, we get envious of them. We think, oh, well, you know, so we try to make ourselves feel better or look better by either putting them down or making ourselves feel more than we are. So envy is a huge one. So let's say we want to examine all of the ways that envy shows up in our lives. It's a very honest conversation that we have with ourselves, and it's not easy. When you start having these honest conversations with yourself, I know when I do, I just want to crawl under the covers and deny everything. Like, nope, I don't want to face this um, quality about myself. Because it's, it's difficult to admit to ourselves that we have these flaws. But if we can come to the point that we can admit that we have these flaws, then we can actually do something about it. If we don't admit that we have these flaws, then we won't even look at looking for an answer. So first we have to examine all the ways, in this case we're looking at envy, how it shows up in our lives. Because um, we're looking at the quality of non-enviousness, right? So the opposite of it is enviousness. And if we're wanting non-enviousness, then we have to look at how the opposite is showing up in our lives. And then why do we feel this way? Why do I feel you know, jealous of a person that has a better car than I do? Or why do I feel you know, um, that I need to make myself you know, feel better, look better by putting someone else down? Right? So we have to examine why we feel this way. Why do I feel incomplete? And obviously the reason is because I haven't put full faith in 
um, trust in Krishna, and I feel that incompleteness, so I look at other ways to fill that emptiness. There's a um, group that I'm in. It's a self-personal development group. It's for women. Um, and there's an exercise that we do with each other. It's called the river cleanse. It's a very interesting exercise. When I signed up in this group, we're assigned a partner. We call him our sister. And we make a commitment that every day we're going to um, get in touch with our sister. We did it through Zoom. And do what's called a river cleanse. And we spend five minutes talking about a quality that we just want to get rid of. right? And so I will say, you know, there's a, a dialogue that we have that we follow just to make sure that everything, everyone knows that this is just me purging. I'm not looking for advice. I'm not looking for um, commenting or anything like that. It's just a safe space for me to share what I'm dealing with at the moment. And you can choose between 5 and 15 minutes. I initially thought 5 minutes would be not enough, and I was like, whoa, it's a long time. So, you know, let's say I'm talk- I want to river cleanse envy, so my sister will say, well, what do you want to talk about envy? So I'll talk, and she'll let me talk until I stop. And then when I stop, she'll say, what else do you have on envy? Until my five minutes is up, she keeps asking and asking. And I find by the end of the five minutes, I'm not only ex- have examined how envy has shown up, but I've also started to look at solutions. Like, okay, what can I do to, to not feel so envious to, to, do, to do this? And by the time I'm done, I feel like lightened, right? I feel super light. Not enlightened, but I feel lighter is what I want to say. Um, after this cleansing exercise. So it's a very powerful exercise, and that's something that we can all do. I've also done it in a writing format where you just set a timer, and, you know, you can say the same thing. I want to get rid of envy because... And you write all the ways that envy is slowing you down in your life, that it's showing up in your life, that it's creating problems. And then when you can't think of what else to write, you just write that sentence again. I want to get rid of envy because... Until the timer goes off, you just keep writing. And if when you stop, you know, when you can't figure out what else to write, you just write that sentence again and continue writing. And it's a really powerful exercise as well. Um, both have their pros and cons. Like, I think the pro with doing it by writing is that in some ways I feel it's a safer space because there's nobody else there. I don't feel like I'm being judged. But at the same time, that vulnerability that you get by talking to someone else also is very empowering and can help um, with the cleanse even more. So we can also ask Krishna to remove these qualities that we don't want from our heart. You know, a lot of times when if I'm dealing with, again, let's say envy, when I'm chanting my japa, I'm, I'm asking Krishna, please remove these anarthas, right? Anarthas are um, anything undesirable that takes us away from devotional service to Krishna. So we want Krishna to remove our anarthas, in this case, envy. So I, I'm asking him, please remove the envy from my heart you know, so that I can better serve you. Um, sometimes when I'm dressing the deities, I have that same thought in my head, you know, just please 
you know, remove this quality that I have, you know. Um, so it's like it beca- it comes part of the prayer to ask Krishna in full faith, knowing that he's going to do it. Because, you know, there's sometimes we do this thing where we'll offer to pay the bill, right? We're at a restaurant with friends, and you're like, oh, no, no, I'll give... But everybody makes this, like, show of reaching for the check, and nobody really wants to pay for the check. That's It's not like that. This is, like, genuine offering our hearts to Krishna. And so, in that sense, we also have to be open to... Sometimes he may take away our glow stick, but give us a shiny, brighter glow stick in return. So That's all I have. What questions do you have for me? So the question is, is that um, we hear this, that Krishna will never give us more that, than we can handle. But at the same time, sometimes we see that things happen that um, a devotee may appear appear to no longer be involved with Krishna consciousness. And um, it could be because of a challenge. It could be from any number of things. So I would say that it's absolutely true that Krishna never gives us more than we can challenge. But we're always constantly being challenged and tested. So we may not always pass the test Im- immediately. We may not always realize that we are being tested you know, we may be that like that little kid crying and throwing a tantrum because the glow stick was taken away from us, um, not knowing that there is something better. So if the kid continued to throw the tantrum and just wasn't even paying attention when his brother was trying to give it back to him, I've seen kids do that too. They get so involved in throwing their tantrum, they don't notice the thing that they're asking for is being handed to them. Um, and that's how we are sometimes, too, that we don't notice. So, you know, we may falter. Krishna's always willing to give us another chance to, to help us back, right? He's just waiting for us to reach our hand up to him, you know, and say, hey, pick me up. Um, you know, I've given this example, I've heard it many times as well, that when a kid starts walking, you know, They take a step and they fall. They take a step and they fall. Most kids will get back up because they're fearless. They have no concept of I might get hurt. So they just get back up and try again. But we tend to, like, if we fall, we just tend to think, oh, my God, my life is over. I'm done. You know, not knowing that our parents, right, Krishna is right there to pick us right back up and encourage us along the way to take our steps and to walk, to run, to, you know, do what we want to do and what we need to do. Um, Another way we can look at that is that sometimes, you know, we, we just don't see what we need to see. And because we have so much conditioning in our hearts and desires that, it's sometimes easier to just give in to the desires at that moment. Um, you know, I have often say that we are constantly fighting a battle inside of us. Like, you know, the, the Maya aspect of it versus the Krishna aspect of it. Which is all, you know, it's really what our choices are and how we look at the world. But we like to personify things, right, in Christianity. We have the devil and God, right? And 
It's like the angel and devil sitting on our shoulders. But really, both of them are our own mind. And we, you know, it's who we decide to listen to in our, in, in our mind. And it's much easier to listen to the devil because, you know, there's some desires that we want to fulfill, and it makes it easier to do that. Um, you know, I kind of, I'm in a group that I kind of, on Zoom, and I look at it as like a um, Mayaholic group, right? Like, I, we don't literally say, "Hey, I'm Jay Shivada, and I'm a Mayaholic," but it's basically along those lines of, you know, understanding that we are addicted to Maya. And Ritesh Swami gives this example of: we know that, you know, like for me, it's TV and other stuff, but we know that we have these attachments. And we kind of keep them close by. We keep our bag of Maya close by. It's like our security blanket. Anytime we can open up the blanket and just take a little bite and put it, or, you know, open up the bag and take a little bite and put it back. Um, and so sometimes when the, the the draw of the bag is just easier and seems more comforting than the challenges, then we can... Um, not rise up to the challenge. Thank you. Sarantara Srimad Bhagavatam ki?